0: Welcome to MedHeads, the weekly show that brings a biopsychosocial focus to issues of the day, along with special guests who will showcase their expertise and enthusiasm about their field of practice. Your host, Dr. Fergal Armstrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and welcome to MedHeads. Today, we have our regular guest, Craig Payne, a group facilitator with us. Good morning, Craig. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm great, Fergal. Good to see you again.
0: And you, and you. So I suppose today we're going to take the opportunity of talking about holistic treatment in the context of uh, drug and alcohol treatment. What do you understand by the word holistic?
1: Well, I just take holistic to mean um, an overall approach. And mm. when we're dealing with um, with with clients, and and as I've said before, you know, this journey is individual for for each client. And um, You know being able to look at all all aspects of their life domains is a really important piece of the puzzle Um, and getting a a team together to work on them all at once so as the journey continues more importantly
0: are you saying then that holistic treatment is an all-encompassing phrase that denotes the use of a, a wide range of therapeutic interventions to try and match the needs of a wide range of clients who are all in different stages of a recovery journey? Is is that what you're trying to say?
1: Um, yeah, and I th- well, I think it's we've got to set up a model that's um, that's ongoing, um, mm-hmm. and it allows allows a client to access um, treatment when when they need it um, on all levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to to have counsellors, to have psychologists, to have friends and family um to be looking at housing supports to be looking at financial supports you know Mm -hmm. as different different needs arise um yeah it's having access to to those treatments
0: so you've mentioned a list of uh therapists you've mentioned psychologists counselors family therapists um, social workers they're all a necessary part of the recovery journey but are they all necessary at the same time in an individual recovery journey.
1: No, they're not. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the process. Um, and I suppose that's where we've got to get to know each client a little bit more at the start um, and start to understand what their needs are and how we can best prioritize those needs. Um, how do you
0: good
1: do awesome. that? Starting the conversation with them. Um, and, again, this brings up another, another question, too, of trust. And it can take time before um, some people are willing to open up and, and have the, the deeper conversations, um, you know, and, and that's a natural part of the, the journey as well. And, again, I think that's where, you know, people with lived experience, peer workers, um, 12-step programs, um, other peer groups that can assist, and, and this is where we head into the social side of things as well.
0: And I suppose this feeds back into what you've said before, that really drug and alcohol treatment is 15% drug-based, you know, drug-based, medical-based, and 85% psychosocial, isn't it? it? I mean, the recovery journey is more about psychosocial than it is about any other factor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And <clears throat> it's, it's about what keeps... Um, Keeps driving, driving them back to using mm-hmm. again. Uh, yeah. You know, what we can, those factors are. Yeah, we, well, they can be anything. They can be compl- They can be as simple as things going really well. It can be complacency that that things are going well. Maybe there's just a still um, a lacking of acceptance, or you might 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 call denial, mm-hmm. or um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe they're thinking they life's going pretty well. It's been a great six months. I reckon mm-hmm. I can try this again Um, and or it can be significant events maybe it's a a loss of a job maybe um, things just get really difficult maybe it's that they're unhappy in a relationship uh, unhappy at home and and that's where it comes down to part of that 85% being Mm. um, as helping them learn to deal with emotions and um, and just and just live life without using. Right. Start to that resilience.
0: So what would be the first uh, treatment intervention that you would offer a client? Because we're talking about a journey and we're talking about holistic treatment. So what's the first intervention that you start off with when you're helping clients?
1: I think understanding their motivation for change mm-hmm. uh, is, is really important. and. As, as we've said, you know, like this, this can be a stop-start journey and and relapse is quite often a, a part of the journey as, as we tick along. And so understanding what the motivations are and then keeping motivation up as we go. Um, sometimes people tick off goals and they think, okay, yeah, um, I'm doing okay again now. Um, but the overwhelming motivation has got to come from self and a lot of the time you hear people saying I'm doing it for my kids I'm doing it for my family I'm doing it for other people but the real change is when they actually start to do it for self. and so but assisting them on that journey to understand their motivations and work through that is is where we start
0: and you see that on a daily basis you see people change from you know uh, I'm doing it because my wife was going to divorce me if I don't to, I'm doing it for myself because I want to improve my life. That's that's a that's a transition that you see on a near daily basis. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and and I, a lot of the time, as um, as clients come through or that they've had, may have had an extended period away and um, and are coming back to treatment, it it starts to become yeah, I'm just sick of this. So it was mm-hmm. yeah, maybe the wife was sick of it. Maybe work maybe mm-hmm. work was becoming a problem. So work we're assisting them to do things but until that um that commitment that real internal commitment comes from so a real change starts to happen but that's not to say that that change process hasn't already begun because right. the treatment's right. begun the seeds have been planted mm-hmm. and, and part of that is the the understanding of um of when they come back to treatment again knowing mm-hmm. this is Part of the, part of where I went wrong and this is part of the learning experience is to how things can keep moving forward so that's the
0: first thing that you would do uh, so what's the next thing that you would do?
1: well I think it's um, it then comes down to uh, working at getting them off the substance. So, you know, if, if that's a detox, then, uh, then that's detox. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's understanding, um, you know, understanding what supports they need around and what connections they're going to need around um, and what, what connections may be lacking in their lives, what connections um, may be extra, where extra help's needed, um, things that have worked in the past that they may have dropped off from. Um, so just beginning to understand what supports we can employ and get in place to, to help them.
0: Okay, so okay. detox and stabilization and rehabilitation—they're they're, they're possible second-line interventions after understanding the motivation. What does detox mean?
1: Well, detox is just where we go into a um, into a treatment facility and um, and are given an environment where they can be safe from the, the drugs the alcohol about the, the, the behaviors whatever it is um, and they can be safe and medically assisted to um, to get to get the drugs drugs and alcohol out of their system in a safe manner um, yeah. but for some people you know that yeah. um, maybe counseling's the next step mm-hmm. um, maybe they're not ready for detox detox yeah. sounds you know, it can be quite stigmatizing for people and and yeah. you know, they're unsure as to whether they need that yeah,
0: and how would you counsel someone pre-detox? What would you say to someone like that?
1: Well, you can just um, let them know what what the uh, what the process is, um, and usually detox detox itself only takes seven to ten days with uh, yeah. with most substances. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, we just let them know what the process will be and and why we think that's important, but. Mm-hmm. It's not just taking away the um the substance because it's as we've said before yeah that that eighty five percent it's it, it's those drivers those life issues that are that, that keep them coming back so once we start to work on those and as we start to fix those that urge to use can be taken away
0: yes it's, it's so That's, I mean for me addiction is actually to separate phenomena the first one is the physiological dependency for which we need detox and then the 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 second set of phenomena is the as you've described it now the urge to use so when we when we experience challenges in our lives, one of our coping mechanisms if if we have addiction is to go back and use that original substance to which we were previously addicted so it's, it's the relearning, the rewiring after a detox that is so important and, and actually defines recovery. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they're using the substance because it, it, it provides a relief. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's what, whatever's making them uncomfortable, whatever's putting them at, at, uh, ill at ease, um, and whatever it is that they're struggling to deal with, mm. they look for that... Um, that thing right. that's just going to, that instant relief. So
0: how do, we, how do we teach people different strategies? What do we do in, in drug and alcohol counselling after a detox that helps people to cope with the challenges that they're going to inevitably face?
1: Well, a part of that is uh, is learning to deal with emotions that are going to come right. along with things, um, mm-hmm. to prepare uh, themselves for difficult situations.
0: Mm-hmm. And how do you do um, that? How, to, how do you... How do you deal with emotions?
1: Well, one of the things uh, we employ is um, some DBT uh, or CBT, and getting them to understand and evaluate their, um, well, starting to gain an understanding of themselves and how they react in certain situations and how they may be able to react better. And um, a lot of the time, um, that, that emotional urge, that emotional impulse, when things are getting too hard to deal with, um, mm. that's when things become overwhelming and so the more balanced we can keep that emotion level mm-hmm. uh, the less likely they are to, to use.
0: And is that where the word triggered comes in? You know people say oh I feel triggered by a certain experience.
1: Yeah absolutely and, mm. you know, and understanding that trigger it, it takes time and yeah. it takes time to learn how to, how to deal with that and it's a learning process. This this whole journey is a learning process, and it's maybe if there's a lapse, it's understanding oh, what why did that happen, and and what was I doing that that, that occurred, and, right. it, and it can 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 come unprepared.
0: Yeah, yeah. So being triggered or 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 understanding what triggers are is, is an essential part of the journey to, to recovery, learning how to deal with a trigger and not, not in the old way, but in a new way. Um, but that's a very painful lesson. And, and, you know, in my experience, a lot of patients spend the early part of their time in recovery experiencing triggers during therapy or during clinical interactions. Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, a lot of the time it's it's trauma-based um, yeah. and it's bringing up situations or um, things that have happened that are really difficult to deal with and again this is why maybe higher levels of support are needed you know the, mm-hmm. the drug and alcohol counselor can, can help with the drug and alcohol counseling but um, mm-hmm. as we as we progress maybe maybe there's things that need um, need psychological help need, need a psychiatrist um need right. help with the GP. Um,
0: okay. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a particularly vulnerable time for patients. And that's when they need extra support. But being triggered during therapy is not actually a failure. You know, it's, it's not actually something that's necessarily bad. It just is an opportunity, I suppose, to understand one's history and then work out a different way of dealing with, with, with the emotion. So it's not all bad and oh, that's anyway.
1: absolutely no no it's it's not it's actually it's actually a great thing to first uh, to, to start mm-hmm. to gain that understanding yeah. gain that knowledge yeah. because yeah um preparation plays a big part in this. and so if it has been a situation or if um that's it, caused that's caused this or um a, a particular environment or or whatever that trigger has been um maybe it's something that can't be avoided you know for some people you know Difficult situations, confrontation is is enough to do it. So sometimes, yeah. And so, how do we better prepare for a confrontation? How do yeah. we better prepare for that situation next time? Yeah, and that's where yeah. we start to go.
0: So it's almost like a, a relapse in the community. A trigger in a, in a therapeutic environment is an opportunity to to learn, to understand, and a relapse in the community again should be viewed as an opportunity to learn. And to understand and, and then change change tact change process. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And it can be a reinforcement. Mm. Um, you know, with the right supports around and the right people, they're not going to walk yeah. away because of a relapse. They're yeah. there. For, they're there to help with the relapse, and yeah. it's an a, an opportunity to identify um, with those supports that hey, we're here. If this is happening, give me a call. If this is happening. Yeah. Let's get on top of it straight away. Uh, yeah. Rather than a need to prevent to cause down this level, and but and that's where we fall back into the shame and stigma side of things, and the guilt. Uh, yeah. And yeah, yeah. And if there's that thought that I've let other people down, it's got to be that thought first that ah let let my start. and it's not letting yourself down. It's just okay. We've hit a bump in the road here. Let let's put up the hand. Let's ask for help again, and and see yeah. what we need to do different this yeah. time.
0: Yeah. Because it can be very daunting, you know, if you're in the depths of addiction and you're looking up onto the mountain peak, which represents recovery, and you've got this long journey to climb. It can almost feel pointless, you know, when you're at the very bottom of a mountain, and you've got to climb all that way. Uh, you know, you do need help. You know, you, ca- you, you cannot do this on your own. Addiction therapy involves support. It involves the help of other people. You, you, you cannot do this on your own.
1: Absolutely not, and you know, I was talking to um, someone during the week, or I'm work, working with someone during the week, who is in the middle, uh, in the middle of their third detox,
0: yeah.
1: and the, I and I overheard a conversation with someone, and, um, and they said that I, oh, you know, I'm back here and I'm starting again, and mm-hmm. I just, you know, pulled up on that for a second because it wasn't starting again, and I identified with him that hey, this isn't starting again, you know, like mm-hmm. this is. This is just picking up from where you left off. Yeah. And we're identifying, you know, what happened this time and what drove you yeah. back. And yeah. uh, and we're working on that issue. Yeah. Um, and in this particular case, um, housing is is a big part of that. And so and once that housing is sorted, you're, they're in a much better position to be able to maintain a lifestyle that's going to um, help them on the, on the yeah. abstinence journey.
0: So, I mean, you, you've talked about housing, and I suppose this is a very useful segue into the idea that addiction therapy is not just medical, you know, it's, it's actually least medical, and it's more social. So, how do you break the cycle of no job, no money, no rent, no housing, no family support, no, no life, oh, it's awful, I'm going to use drugs, how, how do you break that vicious cycle?
1: Yeah, one step at a time. Um, and it's starting to identify, as, as we can identify those areas that the assistance is needed, um, we can then start to work on solutions for that. Um, and step by step, you know, you don't just jump into long-term housing. You don't just jump into long-term work. Maybe mm. it is just um, setting up first and getting Centrelink organized oh, and that note. Oh, then working right. on the recovery side of uh, things.
0: Yeah, but Centrelink has recently decided that drug and alcohol addiction is not actually merits to or grounds to sign a to sign a Centrelink sick note. So how are you supposed to to manage? You know, when you can't even be on the sick uh, with Centrelink, just with drug and alcohol addiction, you've got to have another diagnosis like anxiety or depression or, or, or physical diagnosis to get access to those payments. I mean, I think that's a, that's a failure on the part of Centrelink.
1: Absolutely, and look at them. Think, uh, the, the thoughts around the drug testing for the for Centrelink payments and things that are coming yeah. up—it's just tell further that. alienating people from service.
0: Tell, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Well, just again, this comes down to the the life issues that people are facing, and for some people, getting through the difficult stages, um, using is is a part of the journey, um, and. Uh, it, it can take some time before they're, before they're ready to stop using and before all the drivers that, that are pushing them to, to want to use um, are able to be, they're able to get assistance with. And so, yeah, just, just ripping the one coping mechanism that they've got at the moment out yeah. of their life and not providing any of the other supports around mental health, around, yeah, better housing, yeah. Um, you know, some, some of the areas of housing, they're, they're not great. It comes down to the environment that people are living in um, and the environment, their, their social environment. And, you know, it's not easy just to, to pick up and walk away from, um, from, from lifelong friends. And it's not easy just to pick up from a life that you've known, known for so long. And, yeah, you just take away someone's ability to, uh, like their only source of income. Mm. and you're just actually adding to the problem more than anything because you're not providing the treatments that go with it.
0: Yeah, my concern about this uh, this denial of, of Centrelink benefits for patients with addiction and also this this thing about uh, drug and alcohol testing to access payments, is my concern is that it's there's a prejudice there there's a feeling of uh, if we give them anything they'll just sell it and spend it on drugs so there's a lack of understanding on the part of the powers that be regarding a the inevitability of drug use usage during the recovery process and b the complete necessity for support you know oh, if we give them any money they'll just use it therefore what's the point of giving them money if we don't give them money they can't use So, and then the corollary of that is that if if Centrelink reduces benefits or because of active substance use disorder, well, you know, that's not going to be a magic cure. All of a sudden, these patients are not going to suddenly stop using because Centrelink stopped paying them. What they're going to do is they're going to start committing crime, acquisitive crime, to fund their drug habits. So I think it's actually a very short sighted intervention. You know, would you have any views on that?
1: Yeah, I think it's really dangerous yeah um again yeah as as you've identified um you take away their income, how do they get an income that yeah. it's it's for, it's forcing the problem deeper and yeah. I think we're going to look at, at then brings us into the bigger picture um okay, you're taking away you're gonna take away the income or you you know but what supports are you providing yeah and you know and, and what assistance are you providing to with access to treatment? Yeah. and we 've identified that there 's long waiting lists with access to treatment yeah. um, statewide and you know and again this is not just this is not just a, an alcohol and drug issue this is this is mental health this is this is housing this is economic um, this is social and so you 're just taking away taking away the income and leaving much bigger problems and it 's yeah. really dangerous.
0: I mean, you know, from a from a public health perspective, you know, there are various figures bandied around, but one figure that springs to my mind is that for every dollar invested in drug and alcohol treatment, it actually saves seven dollars in uh, social costs, and if you factor in medical costs, it can actually save up to fifteen to twenty dollars, especially when we think about needle exchange programs or needle syringe programs. So that you know, the, the the people argue over the figures, but it, I think it is undeniable that investing in drug and alcohol treatment actually saves the overall economy a vast amount of money. And another point, locking people up because of their drug and alcohol addiction costs more money than actually treating them. Uh, Don't quote me on the figures, but if my memory serves me correctly, I think it costs about $100,000 a year to incarcerate someone. But depending on which state you're in, to put someone on a methadone treatment program, it costs up to $5,000. So again, that economic argument doesn't hold true. And the final point that I want to make is that, um, you know, the example of Portugal, which took the lead in legalizing substance use disorders or legalizing uses of using substances, when they were changing the law, there was a commitment to diverting all of the money saved from not chasing down drug users and drug dealers you know, from all the police interventions, all of that money they committed to actually diverting into drug treatment programs. So the legalization of drugs in, in uh, Portugal was twofold. They stopped the, the cops from chasing the drug addicts, and then they were able to fund drug addiction treatment. It was twofold. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's Portugal's a, a fantastic model, uh, and yeah. it's something I think we should all be striving striving to get to. Uh, yeah. And again, because it's looking at the, at, the, at everything holistically. It and is, yeah. they're, um, you know, they're looking at what the issues that keep this person stuck in addiction are, and they're yeah. dealing with it, and they're providing yeah. pathways right. out along the journey. Yeah, um, yeah they're being able to um, set up study grants, being able to set up employment grants, um, you know, and assisting them back with the assimilation back into society. um this is where the answer lies you know and taking away the stigma actually saying it's okay yeah we're not going to stigmatize you we're going to help you and we're
0: we're not going to judge you either
1: yeah the the most difficult thing for people to do is to put their hand up and say i need help because of the what the view society has and the stigma the the push down um and yeah People putting up their hand and asking for help is one of the most courageous decisions they can ever make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then moving forward with that, um, it's it's a, it's a long process, and it's full of stops, stop starts, as we said. And um, and it takes assistance. And if we can reduce that stigma to people accessing treatment and providing more treatment, because there's just not enough detox beds, there's not enough rehab beds. There's not enough service out there. There's not enough. Um, and then we get stuck in the treatment models being in such silos with yes. drug and alcohol yes. and mental health and housing. And yes. there's a real difficulty with crossing over the supports. And, yes. you know, we have care team meetings and these sorts of things where we get people on board. But getting those dates to match up, that's a difficulty. And so if we will look at the long term, it's, it's coming up with a long term plan for someone. And, yeah. you know, to try and get a, a bed in it, like, in, like, in, like a, a proper housing or a, a good housing um, option lined yeah. up with coming out of rehab or yeah. working through drug and alcohol treatment, counselling, that's yeah. where the difficulty lies. And there's just not enough access to treatment. If we can get more treatment there, as you say, stop wasting it on the law enforcement, stop wasting yeah. it uh, through courts. Yeah. we can actually start to get better outcomes.
0: So, I mean, you know, if, if, I, if I had a magic wand and I could have anything I wanted, I would say that all drug and alcohol treatment should be seen in blocks of five to ten years. And it starts off with a journey in a detox unit, then a stabilization unit, then a rehab unit, and then a long-term housing and employment project. And I reckon that that would actually be cost-effective if we, if we diverted all of the money that we spend chasing drugs into that kind of treatment model. I, I think drug and alcohol treatment, the, the, the way it is set up now, is too much focused on, you know, uh, you know, as you say, the silos. or the, the detox units have their own set of uh, key uh, key performance indicators, KPIs. The rehabs have different KPIs. Um, and nobody 's very few services are actually integrating with a wider problem, and therefore they 're not part of the wider solution that is that is needed and I think yeah. the reason why that is is because there's there is no financial incentive to do that, not at the moment anyway
1: not at the moment everyone 's fighting for their own funding um yeah. you know there's a uh, I found out recently um that it's on average 20 years before someone identifies a problem with their substance use and for yeah. them accessing any, any form of treatment. And that's just yeah. far too long. And that's yeah. like, that's far too long for them to keep building and to, and to be getting worse and worse. And, uh, and then by the time, the only time people are starting to seek treatment a lot of the time is when it's in crisis point. We yeah. want to be able to stop that, reaching crisis point. And, have them feel comfortable about accessing treatment, effective treatment as well. Yeah, The treatment that's going to assist them. You're, you're spot on the money when you say about the five to ten year block. This yeah. is a long time deal and we only start to uncover things as we go along and, and, it's, and it's a learning process.
0: So we're going to have to wrap it up but what message of hope can you give to anyone watching in terms of holistic treatment?
1: message of hope with holistic treatment is that it's hopefully being worked towards and yeah. uh, and it comes down to a trust and an honesty between um, between worker and client and yeah. being able to yeah. identify the more the more we can identify the drivers and the more we can work on it together yeah. the easier the process becomes
0: all right, Craig, thank you so much for your pearls of wisdom. I really do hope we can speak again soon, and I look forward to that. All the best.
1: Yeah, look forward to it, Fergal. Thanks, Matt.
0: That's it for today's Heads. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and I look forward to your joining again with us soon.